Welcome to the second of a few bonus episodes of OME Talks. I'm your host, David Petro, and on this episode, we are going to hear from the featured speakers from day two of OME 2020 in May. We'll hear a brief description of the sessions from Richard Van Camp, Fon Nguyen, George Kuros, but up first, we're going to hear from Kamau Bob. So let's get right to it. Okay, hello and welcome. Uh, today, we're talking with Kamau Bob. Well, how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. Kamel, for the listeners that may not know who you are, I wonder if you give us a brief description of your bio. Sure. I'm the Senior Director of the Constellation Center for Equity and Computing at Georgia Tech, and I am the Global Lead for Diversity Strategy and Research at Google. The gist of all of that means that I, I operate in trying to experiment at the interface between higher ed institutions and the tech sector, Google particularly, but the tech sector more generally, and expanding computing infrastructure. So when you say expanding computer infrastructure, are you talking about the way that the tech industry works within itself or work interacts with the rest of us? It's, it's more an educational innovation. So the, the principal challenge that we're trying to solve is that there aren't enough teachers in the high school space and secondary school space to teach computer science. And then the capacity of the higher ed institutions is also limited in part because of the appetite of the tech sector. So our hypothesis is that in order for, there are two, but one is that generally speaking, at least in the United States, in order for there to be enough people with these computational skills that the modern economy depends upon, we have to have an expended expanded higher ed capacity to deliver. Second to that is a particular concern, and this is especially true in Atlanta, but a particular concern about who the people are that have access to it. So in, as you well know, in the United States, pretty much everything correlates with race. So black students and Hispanic students predominantly go to schools where there aren't any computer science teachers. So the logic is that if we can adjust the structure of that, we can try to offer some more expanded, sustainable opportunities. So what you're saying is you have an easy job. Yeah, it's simple. We'll be done by Thursday. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you're one of our featured speakers at OME 2020 this year in May, and you're talking about STEM education as a cornerstone of modern citizenship. I wonder if you could give us a, a brief idea of what that is going to be about. Happy to. It's aligned with what I was just describing As a personal matter, my view of citizenship, just to be clear, is it has less to do with the litigious nature of what that means. You being a Canadian neighbor can understand that we're dealing with all sorts of frustrations relative to that in the United States at the moment. But the way that I view that is that in order for citizens to be viable, they have to be able to contribute and to be meaningful. And in many ways, the one of the cornerstones of that is their ability to be productive. And so in this new technopolis, uh, for lack of a better word, basic computational skills, you don't have to be a computer scientist necessarily, but basic computational skills are important. Numerical skills are important to be able to just be occupied and be meaningful. And so that is the, the version of the future that I foresee of what citizenship will ultimately hinge upon. It's going to be skills-based. And then STEM education is the conduit through which 
students and ultimately people will have access to being viable as citizens. So when you say skills-based, what kind of skills are you talking about? When you say uh, computational skills, I mean, as a math teacher, I think basic math operations, but I wonder if you mean something else. Well, I think the basic math operations is a cornerstone of all of it. But I think, for example, in the Google world, there are people here who, whose degrees are in English, for example, or in political science. But a lot of what they're asked to do is fairly complicated manipulation of data. And so the interface of that may just be in Excel, but some of them are pretty savvy in programming behind Excel, such that they can get macros to do things to reveal data that they can then interpret in various ways. But that has nothing to do with their degree. It's just now that they have a job, it may be in, in communications or in public relations, but they end up having to have those kinds of skills. So I think that the math foundation that you address as a teacher is fundamental to all of that. But I think increasingly the creep of tech, broadly speaking, skills into the whole range of industrial sectors is it's that march is already underway, and I don't think it's going to stop. So the idea of a, a broader education is something that we really need to help our students get access to. And I know you talked about STEM, but uh, it, it almost sounds like STEM is not enough. Well, that's, uh, no, it's not. And it's, that's probably a bigger discussion. But I think, because notwithstanding what I do, I don't agree that pure science and math education is enough. I, I think, at least again, in the United States, we've kind of conflated STEM education with education. and it's, But it's not. A lot of the things that we end up doing is forcing students into being trained technically. But that's a very different proposition than educating them broadly. And so the STEM stuff, to say that it's not enough, I, I think that part of the broader curricular challenges are to consider how we evolve from the traditional math and science to integrate computing and data science into our traditional ways of teaching students and what we think are the pillars of basic literacy has to expand and that you know we're running against the inertia of 200 years of educational practice so now we have this new subject that we have to figure out what to do with and i I think it's kind of an exciting challenge to be honest with you yeah and, and i think there i mean with the with the availability of technology in so many different forms now i think we actually have the means to make that a, a much more interesting journey for students. Something that, that maybe wasn't, uh, wasn't available to students in, just in the, the delivery uh, even 20 years ago. Yeah, well, I agree with you. And I think that that affirms my point. So let's say that you're an English teacher. And 20 years ago, you studied English in school and then you go teach English and that's it. But now you have to figure out with all of these tools, these technical tools that are trying to say that we can personalize learning in various ways and we can disaggregate literacy from this developmental stage to that developmental stage. And it's based on some technology that you have to be able to manipulate to help students learn from. Then all of a sudden the burden on the teacher is now infused with technology in ways that it wasn't before. And the students are coming at you with you know, phone in hand and so their 
expectations of the speed of the interaction between informational transformation and transport and the way that they construct thoughts and what cogency means, I think all of that is shifting because of the technological, the technological platforms that we're dealing with. And I think that, you know, you mentioned phone in hand. I think that is sort of one of the big cogs right there in the sense that students are walking into classes with the sum total of all human knowledge at their fingertips. And in many settings, we're just telling them, please just put that away. It's a distraction. Right. And I think it really has to be part of everybody's job as a teacher now to help students manage that device so that it can be an asset and not a distraction. I agree with that 100%. (laughs) So let's put that on the list of things to do. Short list. That's a short list. (laughs) That's right. All right. So thanks, Kamau. Thanks for talking to us today. We're going to be happy to have you at OME here in Ontario come May, and we look forward to seeing you Uh, for your talk on STEM education as a cornerstone of modern citizenship. It's been a real pleasure. I'm looking forward to it thoroughly. All right, excellent. That was Kamal Bob, who will be speaking both Friday morning and afternoon. Also speaking both Friday morning and afternoon is storyteller Richard Van Camp. Let's hear how he uses storytelling as a teaching tool. Okay, so I'm talking with Richard Van Camp. Richard, how are you doing? Fantastic. Thanks for asking. How are you, David? I'm good. Uh, Richard is one of our featured speakers at OME 2020 this year in May. And Richard, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about who you are. Well, Dante, Dante, Sagamasi, everybody. My name is Richard Van Camp. I was born and raised in a little community called Fort Smith in the Northwest Territories, Canada, Treaty 8 country. I'm 48 years old. I know numbers matter to our listeners. I'm 48, and I live in Edmonton now, and I'm an author. I've written 24 books in 24 years. I work in just about every genre, and I also help with movies and TV shows, and I love my life very much, and I can't wait to get to OAME 2020, and I can't wait to rock out on the main stage and get everybody laughing and inspired. Okay, so so speaking of that, I'm wondering if you could tell us about what you're going to be talking about on your featured session this year, uh, something about stories that bring math into question. That seems uh, quite interesting to me. <laughs> well, then my job is done. So my session, my main session is, I believe it's called Stories That Bring Math Into Question. I think what I wanted to, to implore to everyone is that it's, I'm going to be telling stories that are miracle stories that have happened to me or to people that I know. And I'm going to, I actually just shared a few of these stories at a little school in Calgary. There are 500 students K through six. And I was challenging people on what they think about time, things that are supposed to be reasonable. When I share the stories that I have, which I'm not going to share here, you got to show up to receive. I, I, I look forward to astounding people in, in proving that, Time is very much just a construct. Math can be manipulated and time can actually be bent. People can find wormholes to create miracles for others. And I'm personally living proof. And so is my son. And David, I think I'm going to leave it at that. I think that's more. I've actually said too much too soon. I feel like I'm pushing you too far then, <laughs> but I, I, I do want more, but I, I'm, I'm curious if you can, you can talk a little bit about the importance of story. Well, my story is my life. I mean, 
I think we're all starving to see ourselves in curriculum. I think we're all starving to see ourselves in literature. I think we're all starving to see ourselves and our own experiences on the big screen. And I think that, you know, Globe and Mail just did a, a big poll and three out of five Canadians all chimed in and said that we are living in an epidemic of loneliness. I think that we're living in a, in a great time of loneliness. People don't know how to break out of their rabbit trails and connect. And that's where stories come in. And I, I tour all the time and I, I'm the talker. Gee, can you tell I'm an extrovert? And I, I love sitting on, on planes and I love talking to people. And there's a little technique called fishing where I, where I share a little bit and then I get a little nibble back and then I share something huge and that, that always results in somebody who thought they were going to get work done for three hours on a plane end up telling me the most incredible things about their lives, which I in turn gossip about to others. And, and it's just, it, it grows. Storytelling is contagious. And I think we need stories more than ever to remember what it means to be human in this incredible time of technology. I think that so many of us are getting A pluses in our our technological lives, but so few of us are getting A pluses with with our human lives. And that's what I want to remind people about. So, you know, I think this is a really important topic, especially when we're talking to math teachers about teaching math. I think sometimes we can fall into the trap of thinking that teaching in a math class is just about telling students stuff. And I think there's such a, a draw when you are listening to a story versus you're just listening to information. And I think the more we can we can bring stories into our mathematics classrooms, the more we're going to grab our students' attention to make them see the importance of mathematics beyond just a few calculations. That's true. I think you and I were both the same student where when we were sitting either in a physics, a chemistry, an English literature class, or a math class, the second we thought we were never going to use this was the second that we checked out. And that's where a great teacher comes in. If you can incorporate storytelling with the curriculum, you have got students for life. Students that will be showing up, not playing hooky, hooked on your every word. And, and I think now, especially more than ever, teachers need to be entertainers. You have to be interesting. You can't just ramrod the same curriculum that you've been teaching for the past 20 years. This is a different time. Students are expecting more and they deserve more. And that's where that connection, it's always going to come back to relationship. It's always going to come back to connection. And that's where good storytelling comes in. So I'm going to give my very best and hopefully that sparks some courageous conversations and gets uh, teachers fired up to go back into the classroom and start sharing more of themselves and why these math techniques matter in, in, a, in an age where we are more connected than ever globally with what we're learning on, my goodness, the various social media platforms. But again, it, it comes back to the student wanting to understand very clearly why this matters, why now, why here, how will this benefit my life and my practice and my craft? And that's where the teacher comes in. Well, that sounds great because I, I know, you know, within mathematics, even in the history of mathematics, there are a myriad of stories where things came from. And, and I think if we can incorporate 
both those types of stories and stories of, of personal struggle and, and personal triumph, we're going to keep our kids interested in for years to come. Exactly. Okay. So thank you, Richard, for giving us a, a little bit of a hint as, as to what you're going to be talking about in May at OME 2020. So Richard, thanks a lot for speaking with us today. Thank you, David. Masi Cho. Thank you. And we will see you in May. See you in May. That was Richard Van Camp talking to us from Western Canada. Next up, we've got Fawn Nguyen from California talking about visual patterns, math talks, and problem solving. Okay, so I'm with Fawn Nguyen, and Fawn is going to be one of our featured speakers at OME 2020 this year in May. Fawn, how are you doing? I am doing great. Thank you, David. Fawn, I wonder uh, for our listeners that don't know who you are, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. My name is Fawn Nguyen, and I have been teaching for about 30 years. Yeah, I know. I, I must have started when I was 12 or something. But this is my first year out of the classroom. I've accepted a job as a math TOSA. That's teacher on special assignment, or sometimes called math specialist, or a math coach for a K-8 through school district, which has nine schools. And I'm actually loving it. It seems like a natural next step for me because I've already been sharing a lot with teachers, being on Twitter, blogging, and all that. So, so I get to do a lot more of that in terms of, well, pretty much full time. So, but I do get to get to teach in the classrooms too. So it's, it's kind of perfect <laughs> so far. And you're talking to us from California, correct? Yes, yes. Southern California. So Fawn, you are one of our featured speakers and you are going to be talking, according to what I have, about visual patterns, go figure, math talks <laughs> and problem solving. Yes. Uh, I wonder if you could give us a little idea of what people can expect from your session. Great. Thank you. Well, two years ago, I um, gave a talk at OME about problem solving and how to incorporate that into the classroom. Well, I'm, I'm very grateful and honored uh, to be invited back. And so this time I get to kind of walk the walk. You know, I felt like I was just doing the talk and be able to share with teachers and have them actually experience these routines and tasks that I'm passionate about because they truly empower students and their learning. And that includes visual pattern and number talk routines. And I'm hope also hoping that we engage in a couple of problem solving tasks. There's plenty of research to support the benefits of engaging students in problem solving, yet few students, from my observations and just talking to teachers, are exposed to this type of task in their math class. And it's likely due to the lack of professional development for teachers to engage in these tasks themselves and how to make it an integral part of the curriculum. Right now, I feel like if there's problem solving at all, it's more like an enrichment. And, and I think that's unfortunate. I think it's a shame that because problem solving is just something that allows you know, that, that low entry, high exit for all kids to be able to engage in and allow them to think. And I don't think that should be, to me, an enrichment is like an afterthought or an extra thing. And so I'm trying to push it to be part of the curriculum. It's embedded. And I'm, I'm ha I guess I'm happy to say, I, I think when I look at our Ontario curriculum, we tried to embed a lot of problem solving directly in that curriculum itself Yay. to remind teachers that that is part and parcel of what should be done, not just the mechanics of doing math, right. but using that mathematics to solve greater and more interesting problems. And I think sometimes those can be the, the, the catalyst for interest for students. Exactly. Now, during your talk, what 
grade level of topics would you be covering, do you, do you think? I'm hoping, actually, now that I'm at a K through eight school, because I was a middle school uh, teacher, and, and I knew, normally do workshops for six through 12, but now I honestly truly believe that the visual patterns and the math talks and the problems for K through 12 and older, I mean, it's, it's for everyone. And yeah, and, uh, you know, I see it. I mean, other elementary teachers will share with me what they've done. And so just to see it so broadly and as it should be, you know, used across grade levels. So yeah, I'm hoping it's K-12. You know, and one thing that I I think I've really started to embrace is that I don't think there is mathematics that is too young for any grade, if that's a, a way to say it. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I just this week was using some of Graham Fletcher's uh, subitizing cards mm-hmm. in a grade seven and eight class. Yes. Uh, and they loved it. Right. And and I think, you know, we, I was talking with the teacher that, you know, this idea of adding to 10, you know, what do you need to add to get to 10? Yes. Is a skill that even kids in high school sometimes struggle with because they've just never really slow down. Really, yeah. Yes. To do that kind of, yeah. And so I, I think that even though some of the, the, the topics themselves might be linked to a particular curriculum in a particular grade, many times some of those younger, younger uh, topics are good for all students in many grades. Absolutely. And I, I, you know, I, I feel somehow the word play, to play with mathematics, it's just not, as soon as you start middle school, I mean, middle school kids that I've had, you know, most of my, um, my teaching career has been middle school kids, and already I'm hearing them, you know, that's the point where it gets tougher. And that's when they, you know, they kind of check out because the math, it's almost like because they, the elementary, you know, teachers, they just get to engage and do more of those hands on more play with mathematics. And somehow it got to a point where in starting middle school, it got so serious about the algorithms and the, the, time facts, you know, all those things just got so strict and so, so pacing guide oriented. And, you know, that's not the fault of the teacher when, you know, they're under pressure to to finish, you know, X, Y, and Z by a certain amount of time. But, and it's, it's all unfortunate. That's all to the detriment of graduating people who are, um, who just kind of turn off to mathematics. I mean, we, we school literally sucked the joy out of mathematics. And, and that's what I'm finding. And I find it very, very sad. So trying to put it back in. Yeah. And, and I, I, you know, I am too one to try to bring that element to play. I like to say, you know, I like to get students to tinker around with mathematics to, to, you know, realize that there's, there's a lot of benefit in just like, not worrying about making mistakes and to just let them let yourself be free to make those mistakes and uh, embrace them so that you know you can you can learn from those and and move forward right and and feel safe to do so i mean it's a whole culture you know that um you know you have to talk the talk and walk the walk and in terms of when we ask kids to to take risk and play you know do we actually live up to those words you know or do we say one thing and yet we end up grading something and putting marks on on stuff that we told them to you know take risk in so we might ourselves have conflicting practices okay so we've got we've we've covered a lot in a few yeah, minutes here right and i feel like Anyone going to your session will leave with 
probably a, a quite a rich discussion about many of these topics. And so I'm glad that you're back at OME again this year. We're happy to have you. Thank you. And we hope to see you in May. And uh, uh, hopefully uh, you'll have a good time in Ontario again. I sure will. I hope so. Looking forward to it. I'm very honored. And thank you so much for the committee to asking me back. And thank you for doing this, David. No problem. That was Fawn Wynn, who will be speaking Friday afternoon at OME 2020. Finally, we'll hear from George Kuros. He's actually the keynote speaker on Friday morning, but he's also going to be doing a featured session as well on Friday afternoon. All right, we're talking with George Kuros. George, how are you doing tonight? I'm great. Thanks for having me today. I wonder, George, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, my name is George Kroos. I'm actually an educator out of Edmonton, Alberta, originally from Humboldt, Saskatchewan, and been in education for about 20 years. Been in roles from K to 12, vice principal, principal, central office. And now I just have the true honor and pleasure to be able to work with school districts around the world. And one of the things that I love is coming to Ontario because I know that it's one of the best education systems in the world. And not only do I hope that people will learn from me, but I know for a fact that I will learn a ton from those educators because every time I come to Ontario and connect with educators there, it's truly an honor and really pushes my thinking. Awesome. Uh, and now you've actually spoken at OAME before, so it's good to have you back this week. As I, or this time, as I said, you are one of our keynote speakers. You're going to be talking about the innovator's mindset in your keynote address. But today, I'd like you to talk a little bit about your featured topic. That's going to be a breakout session that you're doing called your digital footprint. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it actually ties into the keynote too, because I like that when the ideas kind of overlap, and this is a really good opportunity to kind of dig it deep into some of the content that I'm going to share in the keynote. And the idea behind the digital footprint session is really looking at what is our presence online? How do we actually help our students who basically every single student we work with right now is going to be Googled for a job, post-secondary, amongst many other facets of life. So how do we actually share in a way that you know provides opportunities for ourselves, but also as educators, I think it's really important. How do we actually use our footprint to connect and and learn from other educators around the world. I know that personally for myself, I've grown a ton because I started connecting on Twitter, Instagram with actually, with actually educators from Ontario and I learned a ton from them. So it's not just about branding because that's not really my thing. It's more about sharing our learning online so that we can actually connect with one another to to really elevate the profession of education. Now, when you say our, you, are you talking about us as teachers, us as administrators, us as schools, or all the above? All facets, actually. I think that as a parent, for me, I'm very cognizant of what is going on social media with the schools that my daughter potentially could be going to. Uh, I look at what administrators are doing because it starts, it tells me more than what any website that someone from central office is making for a school tells me. And so, you know, you're looking at what's happening in teachers' classrooms. And I think it's really powerful because I, I want to know who's going to be working with my daughter when she enters elementary school and, and what's the school like. And I think it tells you so much more. It's, it becomes a lot more personal, to be honest with you. So I think it's really important that we have access to this. And, you know, a lot of people will challenge me and say, well, I don't want to share my personal life. And you actually don't have to. You share whatever you feel comfortable sharing. 
but I do know that all facets of our life, we we tend to you know decide where we're going to go to a restaurant based on Yelp or TripAdvisor or things like that. And so schools actually have that opportunity to share and connect, to share their story and share what they're doing, not only as individuals, but organizations. And I think it's actually really important to model because we see a lot of students right now who are doing very well in school, but then have a digital footprint that maybe isn't really representative of you know, all of the opportunities that they want to create. And the thing that I'll ask the group, and I, I often talk about this, and I'll probably talk about this in my keynote as well, is that do you even believe right now that 50% of your students could share their digital foot, footprint with an employer, post-secondary institution, and actually gain an opportunity? Or are they more likely to lose it? And that's actually like 50% is a really low bar. And we're, we wanted to make sure that we always talk about our students having every opportunity because of their experience in school, but we see many students are actually losing opportunities. But what I really focus on is how do we actually utilize this to create opportunities for ourselves? And I'll, I'll, I've been blessed to, you know, I just started sharing my learning online and it led to a lot of opportunities I didn't even know existed. And we want to be intentional about that, not only for our students, but in ourselves and what we model to our students, you know, as, and, and what does it say about, you know, the work that we're doing and do, do we share it in a meaningful and authentic way? And I think an important piece of that is, if we have any hope of helping our students manage their digital footprints, we have to have a handle on our own. Absolutely. And I think that's what we're too often in education with all these new things that are coming into our world. We're trying to skip right to the teaching without doing the learning. And so the session is really targeted towards educators, administrators, thinking about it from their own perspective so they can actually learn it so they can effectively help their students be successful in this realm as well. Now, for someone who maybe really hasn't even thought about their digital footprint in a very meaningful way, what maybe would be the first thing that you would tell them? Well, I think, you know, I think first of all, to just Google your own name and just see what's out there, because a lot of times, especially as teachers, a footprint is being created by someone else for you, whether it's an uh, an upset parent or a rate my teacher profile, things like that are happening. So just kind of being aware, but a lot of people... They find something, you know, negative about them and they become discouraged. And the reality is that you actually have a lot more control over it in the sense that you can always share about yourself. And I'd rather, you know, as an administrator, I never took a rate my teacher rating seriously, to be honest with you, because we know that people tend to go online more likely to complain than to praise but if that's the only thing that I found, then it doesn't really tell me much. And it doesn't really tell me much about, about the educator. And I got challenged once on it. I thought it was really, really interesting and thought out challenges that, well, if you, do you believe that I'm a bad teacher because you find something inappropriate or, you know, not inappropriate, but, you know, that doesn't really represent my teaching? online I said well no but it's becoming the resume if, if I actually looked at your resume and had no information or had something only negative about you it doesn't tell me much and this is becoming a resume for ourselves so I think just even starting to be aware of what your presence is online is is probably a good place to start awesome Okay, so George, you're going to be, again, as I said, uh, one of our keynotes at OME 2020 this year. So we look forward to seeing you and we really appreciate you talking with us today to give us a little glimpse of what you're going to be telling us in May. Thank you.
I'm excited to to join you, uh, but I, I'm always really honored to be able to connect with educators in Ontario because I know they just absolutely do amazing things. So I'm really excited to join you all. That was George Kuros telling us how important it is for us to manage our online persona. Check out all these speakers and hundreds of other sessions at OME 2020 this May 7th and 8th in Oshawa. Registration is now open, so don't delay. You can register at our MCIS registration site. Check the description for a link as well as links to all of today's guests. Next week, we'll have our last of three bonus episodes where we'll have one last word from each of our featured speakers. So stay tuned for that, and we'll see you on the next OAMI Talks.